Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Some artists disappear behind their art. Some are right out in front. The pianist Glenn Gould would have been 85 this week. He died 35 years ago at age 50. Gould's impact on the appreciation of Bach and on piano playing in general is still being felt. But initially, the fascination was him, as much or more than the music. That's what a lot of the press coverage was about. He liked to soak his hands in hot water before recording. He got cold easily, so he wore warm wool clothing and scarves and so on, even in summer. His humming often mixed with his playing. And most famously, he withdrew altogether from live performance in his early 30s, and that was on the grounds that concert performance was old hat. I think that that has no relevance to the contemporary musical scene. I couldn't conceive of going back to that life. I was part of it for eight or nine, whatever it was, rather unpleasant years, rather traumatic. His so-called retirement from the stage allowed Gould to focus on a series of triumphant recordings that still ring in our ears all these years later. And he played with classical recording as no one had, transcribing an orchestra piece by Wagner, for instance. Going back and adding new piano lines on top of it in the recording session. Because sometimes, 10 fingers were just not enough. In some, he inspired suspicion. Conductor George Sell took a dim view of the pianist's eccentricities as Gould elaborately readjusted the piano stool, sawing off its legs if necessary, and assumed a slouching position. Sell grudgingly admitted, that nut's a genius. He didn't much like interviews, and he didn't much like anniversaries. The author, critic, and teacher Tim Page, who became a friend of Gould's for a number of years, did an interview with him early on. But when the printed piece made it into the paper, the editor of the publication had labeled the pianist a crank right on the front page. The cover, really kind of appalling, since my whole point was that he wasn't really a crank. Oh, how painful. That must have been awful. Oh, it was awful, and I called his... his Tim Page and Glenn Gould continued what turned out to be a long telephone friendship. And Page said in our phone conversation that Gould was not that brooding misfit after all. In fact, he was terribly nice and terribly funny, and uh, a lot of the time very childlike, kind of a brilliant kid who just wanted to talk and talk and talk. And a lot nice. less was known in those years about the autism spectrum, which is where some now see Gould decades after his death. In 1982, the year Gould died, was the same year as the death of Thelonious Monk. Monk was 64, and his centenary celebration is less than two weeks from now, October 10th. I'm thinking about the coincidental numbers that connect them, sort of, because I can't help associating these two gentlemen, different though they may have been, who so energized the post-World War II arts world. They had come into public consciousness at just about the same time, 50s and 60s, and in some ways attracted the same kind of attention, devoted fandom and deep skepticism. Robin Kelly's biography, Thelonious Monk, The Life and Times of an American Original, maintains that 1948 was the year Thelonious Monk was invented by a press agent. 
elusive, mysterious, strange, eccentric, a weird genius using weird harmonies. He was pretty much stuck with that throughout his career. The pianist and composer who rarely, if ever, spoke a word? Not really, Kelly says. I mean, Monk was someone who had a tremendous sense of humor, who was always engaged with other people. He actually spoke a lot if he liked you, you know, if he was close to you. Monk was friendly with composer and teacher Hall Overton, who asked him in 1963 at a concert at the New School whom he was trying to reach. Well, I like to reach uh, everybody, the public plus the musicians. I mean, that's how I... Uh, a standard that I set for my songs. I mean, uh, that something that will get to the people's ear, plus no criticism from the musicians. <laughs> the year after that, Monk made it onto the cover of Time magazine, one of only a few jazz players to have the distinction. He was 46. Even then, the 1964 article inside the magazine said of Monk, He stays up for days on end, prowling around desperately in his rooms, troubling his friends, playing the piano as if jazz were a wearying curse. Jazz? A wearying curse? Robin Kelly disagrees. Part of my argument is that the monk that Time magazine wrote about, or virtually almost all the major press, never existed. The monk that's driven entirely by eccentricities who is not in the real world, who's in a world of his own, that's not really Monk. Nobody, Kelly writes, considered at the time that Monk's moody, erratic behavior might have been caused by illness. Monk, he says, had bipolar disorder. Did anybody know what bipolar disorder was in those days? No. He was diagnosed with all kinds of things, mainly um, schizophrenia. Manic depression, there was some discussion of what that meant, but it wasn't clear how to treat it. More than the coincidences of dates or the often misunderstood behavior of these two, what is striking is that they were both iconic modernizers. Gould, digging around in music mostly of the 18th and 19th centuries much of the time. Monk absolutely tied to the old stride piano tradition of much earlier jazz both having found bold ways to make that music sound new. Which, by the way, calls to mind another modernizer, the film Loving Vincent just opened. It's an obsessive animated biopic, thousands of frames painted by hundreds of artists, all using the bold brushstroke style of Vincent van Gogh. He was evil. Is that a medical opinion? And maybe van Gogh is another one, whose seemingly inexplicable behavior often overshadowed his art. Certainly that was true in his lifetime. They all may have seemed out of step, these artists, which is a phrase that's not often used as a compliment, meaning off or different or even behind the curve. We keep being reminded that they were on, full tilt, all of them, way, way ahead of the rest of us. We're still catching up. It's Fishko Files. I'm Sarah Fishko. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.